The following podcast includes explicit language, including, well, you'll just have to wait and see. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor. This is Hang Up and Listen for the week of December 28, 2020. We're going to end the year by taking listener questions. Those questions will be on a whole mess of subjects, including how sports changed our national response to COVID, whether the pandemic sowed mistrust between owners and players, and Joel and Stefan and I will tell you our personal athletes of the year. I am in Washington, D.C., and I am the author of The Queen, the host of Slow Burn Season 4 on David Duke. Also in D.C., Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic and a piece on The Washington Post that came out on Monday. Everybody check that out. Please do. Hello, Stefan. Hi. What was your piece on? He asks, (laughs) faking like he doesn't know. (laughs) Faking like he didn't read an early draft. It's about the renaming of my local high school here in Washington, which is named for Woodrow Wilson. My daughter just graduated from there in the spring, and uh, the city is supposed to pick a new name very soon. And I uh, explore the history and legacy of the teacher, black woman teacher who desegregated Wilson in the 1950s. Uh, It's a great story. Everybody check it out. We'll link to it on our show page. With us from Palo Alto, Slate staff writer, host of Slow's Burn seasons three and six. Mr. Joel Anderson. Hello, Joel. Hey, good morning. And let, yeah, let me give my chance. Uh, Stefan's piece, great. I already cast my vote for Marion Barry, but I understand that he's no longer in the running. And then- oh, He's still in the running. No, he's one of the final seven. He's one of the final, okay. All, all right. right, well, all right. Well, I don't know if my, my you know- Never count out Marion Barry. That, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's, 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 that's an important lesson. Point. <laughs> <laughs> it's a that's very a important point. DC lesson. Yeah, yeah. And also, you know, we should mention that Josh in uh, Slow Burn- Number 29 in the Atlantic's top 50 podcast of 2020, which I think is still way too low, but it does deserve honors of that ilk. Uh, anyway, Thank so you, congratulations, Josh. It was Congrats, great. Josh. Yeah. It's a little pressure on you, Joel, for Slow Burn 6. Just saying. If I don't do I know, 28 or 27. I kind of <laughs> have to hope everybody else is worse. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. You kind of have to hope that the other ones are just not as good. But Josh is going to be working with me on Slow Burn 6, so I don't. I don't know. I, are you going to sabotage me, Josh? Or? No, we got we to gotta root for top 28 uh, look, for this one. Look, Joel, if it's 31, it's Josh's fault. That's right. true. <laughs> That's right. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. So before we get to the listener questions, we did get an email from someone. uh, This was not on the list that... We all circulated, but I think it's fair to spring this on Joel. Would Joel please go into more detail about how he invented raising the roof? Oh, yeah. Well, so uh, in 1993 or four, at a uh, school pep rally, I went to Straight Jesuit College Prep in Houston. You know, they used to invite the football players onto the court during the pep rally. So you just say, oh, you know, everybody get up, go walk up to the floor. And then everybody would cheer and there were cheerleaders there. And I was new to the school. I think I was a sophomore that year. Didn't know, like, I didn't know how to use my hands. Or, you know, I'm just kind of out there feeling uncomfortable. <laughs> and so I just kind of, <laughs> when they called my name, I just started, you know, kind of raising my hand to the roof. And I don't know, you know, what sort of motivated me to do it. But then, you know, it just kind of caught on. And if you remember the Houston Comets and the WNBA, the now defunct Houston Comets, um, started kind of mainstreaming the raise the roof. And so you might just want to think about where they got that from. Uh, and the timing there, because I think I was really at the forefront of the movement. I, I, you know, maybe I'm not the sole inventor of raising mm-hmm. the roof, but mm-hmm. I'm definitely like one of the people that was at the forefront of the movement, uh, which originated in Houston in the mid '90s. Wow. Mm-hmm. ESPN did a, a thorough examination of the invention of the high five, which is uh, also sort of shrouded in controversy and mystery. I eagerly await the story about the invention of uh, raising the roof. Yeah. Joel, when you were just demonstrating it to us, you raised the roof with one hand. Did you use both in the actual event? 
I so I kind of actually did a little wind up and then use it with one ace. It was it was a little bit more of an aggressive razor roof. Like what, I kind of what, what kind of reaction did you get? Was the roof raised? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think people were like, "Whoa, what was that about?" You know, <laughs> and uh, you know, <laughs> who is this handsome new uh, yeah, sophomore? That's right. What is it really? What is he doing with his hand? I also would like to say, too, that there are a couple other things I invented. We don't have to get into it today, but I also would like to believe that I'm the first person to do the military salute after a touchdown. You know, Terrell Davis got, you know, the mile high salute. Mm -hmm. And I know he got a lot of credit for that, but I I like to think that I invented that at a JV game against Episcopal High School in 1994. So, 93, I'm sorry. Wow. We'll save save that for 2021. So many oral histories. You guys, are, you guys are here with a real originator right here. All right, on to our official program. We got a question from Kenneth Owen on Twitter who wants to know, did the return of sports in the summer do more to convince Americans things were returning to normal than any other political, social, or cultural factor and thus do more damage to the possibility of stronger governmental intervention in the COVID pandemic. Mm. Uh, Stefan, what is your take on that? I'm going to say no. I think this is a Wizard of Oz kind of situation. Practically, I think you could argue that the NBA returning and working with scientists at Yale on a COVID saliva test was the most positive contribution that sports made this year. Because I think sports actually failed to convince Americans that things were returning to normal. On the contrary, they reminded us Every bubble, every positive test, every protocols manual, every canceled game, every half-filled or, God help us, filled stadium, every dumbass comment from a coach, every picture of someone on a sideline with their mask around their chin, all of this has demonstrated how troubled we are and how imperfect this has all been. And I think anybody that's saying, ooh, having football back means things are normal, is among those who aren't recognizing the scope of the tragedy. Yeah, I mean, I think when you look at how many games were canceled in college football, you know, the way that the NBA and WNBA had to bubble themselves up, I mean, the World Series ending was totally overshadowed by a player breaking protocol and walking out onto the field uh, in the middle of their celebration. And that that was as much a story as the L.A. Dodgers winning it, you know? After which, so, like, a half dozen people tested positive. Right, right. So, I, yeah, I, I totally agree with you, Stefan, that I think, if anything, it made it unforgettable that we were in the middle of a pandemic, that there was nothing normal about what was going on, and f- sports simply reflected that. I don't think we could ever possibly overlook President Trump and our failure to come up with a federal response being a, the biggest factor here. And if anything, I would say that their incompetence and their mishandling of the pandemic emboldened all of these sports to pursue a return. It was wide open. There was nothing saying, oh, no, we should shut down for, you know, um, the public health. They all pursued these individual strategies to get the games back again. And that's because of our, of our lack of a federal response. So I don't see that sports being more of a factor than anything else. But I don't know, maybe, Josh, I don't know. How do you feel about that? I don't disagree with anything that you guys said, but it might be interesting to engage in a little bit of speculative fiction. Like, what would have happened if every sport was just like, yeah, we're not doing this. Like, we're not going to come back. It's not safe. We need to set an example for the country and say, you know, now is not the time for this. We need to stay home and be safe. That seems like it could have had an effect. It definitely would have had an effect. I'm not sure what that effect would have been. I mean, at the very beginning, when the NBA shut down, that certainly had an effect outside of sports. It was a signal to all sorts of realms in our society that it was time to have you know workers go home and stay home and shut down. And the idea that the sports calendar could get postponed, things could get canceled, things could happen for the first time since World War II, that the Olympics could get like. The idea that this stuff that seemed like it was permanent and in cement and nothing could happen, that it didn't actually need to happen, that had a profound, I think, psychological, but also practical effect on the way that things happened in America and around the world in 2020. And so if that had persisted, if the Big Ten had said, actually, you know, we're going to stick with our original plan and not go back and not play. There's no way that that wouldn't have had kind of trickle-down effects or knock-on effects in the rest of society, right? Well, or would it have had a counter-effect, too? Would it have emboldened 
Trump and his administration to criticize sports. Oh, there and, would have been a huge backlash, but sure. there also would have been, I think, beneficial effects. And I don't know how those things would, would have balanced out, but just because there would have been a backlash doesn't mean that if sports had, you know, teams had stayed home, that, that more people might have stayed home. Well, wait a minute. So are we talking about some sports returning or all sports returning? Because I think that like, yeah. If- Let's do a hypothetical, Joel. There were no sports at all. Rudy Gobert touches a microphone, the NBA shuts down, and that's it. Sports are done for 2020. Yeah, I mean, I think it's possible that if every single sport shut down and stayed shut down for the rest of the year, that we wouldn't have anywhere near 330,000 deaths, right? And yeah, I, I mean, of course it would make a difference, but I don't think it would work. Th- I don't think it would work that way. I mean, I think that we would always have some sports teams and sports leagues agitating to play. And keep keep in mind that, like, let's say if these teams or these leagues decided to hold out, the people that run these leagues are extremely popular and powerful. You know what I mean? Like, they're people that are involved in politics themselves, people that mean a lot within their own communities. And so, presumably, if they took it more seriously, it would have been reflected in other parts of society as well, because they're not just limited to sports. They have an impact on things that go well beyond the teams that they run and the leagues that they're involved in. So, yeah, I mean, I you know, of course, of course, if all these if there were no games, it, we would have had a better response. But I think that would have been more reflective of everything else going on in the country and not necessarily the importance of sports. Let's go back to Kenneth Owens original question. Did it do more to convince American things were returning to normal than anything else? And I'll pose the hypothetical again that if everything had shut down, there were no sports, and there was a collective will and effort on the part of the NCAA and every league and Dabo Sweeney to actually come out and say, we're not doing this and we are urging everyone to stay home— that's a little different. And that, you know, that in that la-la land, I think you could say that sports have done more damage to intervention and illness. I guess the thing that I would dispute in the premise of the question is, did it do more damage to the possibility of stronger government intervention? Mm -hmm. And I think that is dependent on things that are beyond the control of sports. Like, you know, obviously the Trump administration, the federal response to the pandemic I don't think would have changed in its like nature or character if Davos when he was like, yeah, we shouldn't be playing college football. Like, I, I think that's when the backlash comes in and that's when, you know, s- sports is already kind of a part of the culture war over the pandemic and everything else. And it would have just been assimilated into that in a, in a slightly different way. But I don't think it would have changed the nature or character or the like desire of the federal government to handle this in a particular way. But I do think with college sports, you know, we've talked about this a bunch, and I think it was unhealthy to have college football and now college basketball. And if we imagine a world in which that didn't happen, in which just solely in college, if there was a united front and saying, you know, that it's not reasonable to have sports this year. Um, you know, there have been there have been studies, the New York Times did a piece in December saying that deaths from the coronavirus have doubled in counties with a large college population compared with, you know, a 58% increase, a, a smaller increase in the rest of the nation. And so I think you can attribute at least some of that to, you know, college football and college basketball and other college sports coming back. And if there had been more of an imperative in these schools and in these college towns to, you know, keep things away that would encourage large gatherings and encourage people to assemble, then I think we would have had fewer deaths. And that's not the question about stronger governmental intervention, but I think sports coming back and that being a kind of sign of normalcy in these college towns, I do think that that had a profound effect on outcomes this year. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. 
All right, question number two comes from Rajat at R-S-O-X-S-E-A. Because of the real-time experiment in 2020, did you learn anything unexpected about a particular sport once it was played without fans in attendance? Joel, you go first. You know, so I thought about this question a lot once we got it because nothing really occurred to me off the top of my head. But going back to the NBA bubble, it's not that I noticed anything different about the game, but I learned something different about the circumstances of the game, which is that if they don't have to travel, it seems like the quality of ball is so much better. And there is some data to bear that out that in the bubble, the 22 teams average 113.17 points per 100 possessions. And before the league shut down in March, they were averaging 111.95. So it's like about a point and a half difference in terms of uh, you know uh, uh, points per 100 possessions but we saw those games and we saw how well the off how good the players were offensively at least in the bubble and I just not seen NBA offenses click like that you know collectively like where every team had a dude who was going off of 40 even somebody like Jamal Murray Josh could uh fool you into thinking that he was an but, offensive machine but Joel, can't can't this be because uh, the teams weren't playing very good, good or effective or effortful defense? Well, I mean, I think that would be true if we hadn't seen the two teams in the finals that were both really good defensive teams and still could get off their shots, right? Because, I, I mean, I think that I thought what we saw was better offense than defense, clearly, but I don't know, you know, outside of like, you know, historically great defenses, like maybe the 2004 Pistons, if we would have seen, would have been much to been able to stop them. And I mean, you even hear the players. So for this talking. to be a controlled experiment, you just need to put Ben Wallace on every. That's team. right. Yeah. Ben, <laughs> Frode, Ben Wallace, Richard Hamilton, Chauncey Billups, Sheed. Yeah. And I mean, also, I think that it's pretty clear that like, the lack of travel, the being able to, you know, station one place. The players talked a lot about how how different it felt, how fresh they felt, um, and also there was one other factor. And I I have to admit this um, that apparently refs called a lot more fouls in the bubble than they did prior to it, and so that helped to inflate some of the scoring as well. But that's what I sort of took from it. I didn't see anything in any other sport that particularly you know caught my attention, but maybe you did, Josh. I don't know. So there's a related question that we got from Steve M SM Del Rey on Twitter, which was, <laughs> and, and he's asking us to, uh, to buy the, to go along with this premise with him, which is why was the fake baseball season so completely joyless while the other pandemic seasons were weird, but at least moderately entertaining. Hmm. So I don't know if we're all on board with, uh, Steve there, but when I is baseball do, joyful, by the way, I was well, I, I do think that, in my kind of power rankings of which sports suffered the most in terms of ambiance from having the empty seats, I found the like cardboard cutouts in baseball stadiums to be like kind of fun and whimsical for like 30 seconds. And then after <laughs> that, it is just kind of like depressing and disquieting. I mean, like it is, a, it's a depressing time. And so it's like in keeping with, uh, with, with the vibes that we should be, feeling but baseball is slower like even mm -hmm. people that love the sport would have to acknowledge that it is slower there's more time to kind of look around to absorb the atmosphere to like you know understand that like there's stuff going on in the stadium outside the field that's really important to establishing the kind of tone and experience of the sport and I think that we missed that in every sport, but in baseball, it just seemed more apparent to me that the fans are adding something that the action that the action on the field can't ever hope to totally, you know, replace or compensate for. I think that's right. You know, the low white noise of a baseball stadium is definitely part of it, and certainly TV tried to replace that in all sports by by piping in fan noise. But in baseball, you learn just how dependent television production is on fans in the stands. And that's especially apparent in the playoffs. And a producer at Fox once told me that they have, or had anyway, and I think it still applies, a very specific production strategy that as a playoff game moves forward through the innings, the more fan shots you employ to drum up tension, to find people chewing their nails or putting their hats on backwards or putting a towel on their heads. 
um, or praying or whatever. And when you don't have that in baseball, like you said, Josh, there's less to look at. Basketball, I think it was much easier to compensate for the absence of fans. And in a way, I liked it. I liked not listening to the blaring music. I liked, because it wasn't as blaring even when they played it, I liked hearing squeaking sneakers more. I liked hearing players talking more. I like. I felt like, as we talked about on the show a few months ago, I felt like I was much more, uh, I had much more access to the game. Well, I mean, I think that we're going to see how that really plays itself out as they shift back to their home to the arenas, arenas, right? Yeah. Because Right, because it was set up for that in Orlando, and it was a, a really good setup. But uh, now you can see those stadiums and how empty they are. And I thought a lot about how – well, you remember a couple of years ago when uh, Damian Lillard beat the Oklahoma City Thunder on that last second shot. Uh, he pulled up, you know, ridiculous from like 40 mm-hmm. feet and knelt at three. And you see the fans and everybody crowded around him. And we didn't – even though Luka hit like a, you know, a game winner in the bubble, I, I still thought that that was – you know, an element that was missing. But um, to actually to get back to what Josh had said, maybe I took this question differently because I thought what Rajat was asking was, did you notice something particular within a sport related, Mm -hmm. you know, once like once you cleared away the audience and all the other stuff that is distracting, did you see something particularly within a game that made you, you know, see it differently. Like, oh, now I can hear Dwayne Haskins uh, doing audibles at the line or something like that. You're not going to be hearing Dwayne Haskins doing audibles <laughs> at the line much longer. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, right. Well, we probably, if you didn't catch it this past week, you probably won't hear it again for quite a while, um, unless the XFL comes back. So, yeah, um, that, that's kind of what I was looking for. But see, yeah, I think, I, mean, I think it's a better question to ask the athletes, frankly. Did it change the way the games were played? You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'd be really curious to hear whether football players miss having fans in the stands. Don't you think college football, and I, I know, Stephen, you're not a huge college football fan, but don't you think that college football was lost something because you don't have any of the pageantry that makes it a unique sport in this country? I, I thought college football was much sadder this year. There's a lot of reasons it's bad, but I thought that you strip away the, the pageantry and the fans and all the traditions that go around the game. And then you're just left with inferior football. Yeah, I mean, maybe the answer, Joel, is that even if the action on the field or on the court is indistinguishable for us watching at home, well, this is also getting to what you said, Stefan, like, A, it might feel different to the athletes in ways that we can't see from our vantage, but also B, it still feels different even if you can't quite put your finger on it. And it, and maybe the stuff that you can put your finger on is stuff that's happening off the field of play, stuff around the production and around um, you know what's happening in the stands. It took fans not being there for y'all to realize that baseball is boring and slow, huh? <laughs> wow. <laughs> I feel like I can see those stadiums anytime during any season. You know, when you're watching a baseball game, I mean, what, what's Baltimore pulling pull up right now, you know? But, all right. Maybe uh, maybe a good time uh, to move on to our, our next question. Yeah, uh, I can do that one. Do you want me to take yeah, this go for one? It. Yes, all right. Uh, <laughs> the person that asked this question is at Flying Monkey, uh, and his question is, a question I would like to see asked uh, to former black head football coaches. What is the most important element that was missing when you were a head coach? Support for your authority, resources, budget, etc.? Um, and so... Uh, as a black coach, uh, Josh, what did you, what did you feel yeah, was thank missing? Thank you for this giving year? me the opportunity to yeah. address this. I mean, again, I, I hate to be the uh, the guy who's always uh, trying to answer a different question than the one that's asked, but I would say that the biggest issue um, and one that black coaches often speak of when when asked is the inability to fail or the inability to. Um, fail by the standards that are typically set in the football profession and then have an opportunity to coach again. There was a good piece about this USA Today that has some really, you know, every kind of statistic that you can come up with about black football coaches and opportunity is like horrifying. But this one in particular struck me, which is that, you know, the lead of the story is about Tyrone Willingham, who got fired in Notre Dame and then rehired at uh, the University of Washington, and how 16 years later, he's one of only four black head coaches to have been rehired as a non-interim head coach in a Power Five conference. Um, 
And and then it says, by contrast, the SEC started the season with four white head coaches who are in their second or third head coaching jobs after been fi- being fired. So there's parity between 2020 SEC white coach retreads and entire history of college football black head coach retreads. And so, yeah, there's a lot we can say about what opportunities that black coaches are given. There's a lot we can say about the amount of leeway that black coaches have, the amount of years that they that they have. But the inability and and the one thing that we can be certain of, Joel, is that you're going to get fired. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's like a, a, a an enormous chance that any coach in any sport is not going to be able to leave on his or her own own terms. Yeah, I mean, Bobby Bowden and Joe Paterno, I mean, Joe Paterno got, got fired for reasons that were not related, but I mean, the winningest coaches in the history of the game got fired, so. So if you don't get a, another chance after getting fired, it's basically like you're not going to, it's not like you're going to be able to, you know, get that first job and stay stay for life. Yeah, sure. No, you get pushed out. And I actually, yeah, and I, I should I should say, maybe not fired, but pushed out, right? Um, for, for those guys. Like, if you stay long encouraged enough... Encouraged to leave. Encouraged to leave. Like Mac Brown at the University of Texas, you know, probably the best coach of my lifetime at Texas, and he got pushed out. But to build off what you said, Josh, I just think to answer that question is a little bit more simple for me, but it's much more harder in practice. And basically, what black coaches need is, that every, is everything the white coaches have. And that's up to and including the benefit of the doubt. So that goes for the trust that black coaches know what they're doing from player development to fundraising to in-game strategy. Black coaches simply just need to be treated the same as white coaches. I don't think that they need anything different. I just think they need the same, they need the same sort of institutional support that white head coaches have. And that's just, you know, that's very abstract. Like I can't, I can't make white people treat black people differently, but that's what we know is necessary, a necessary condition for success. And so, yeah, that's what, I mean, you know, I don't, you know, authority, resources, budget, all that sort of stuff stems from the amount of leeway that black coaches are given. And, you know, you look at a guy like Willie Taggart, who, you know, really had a year and a half. It was even within his first year that people were calling for him to be fired at Florida State um, a couple years ago. So, I don't think that would have happened necessarily if he had been a white head coach. Um, and I know that, you know, a lot of people point to Chad Morris at Arkansas who got f- fired at roughly the same time, but like he was truly underperforming relative to the history of the program. Willie Taggart was in a really bad situation. So anyway, without getting too, you know, distracted by, you know, individual examples, to close off, yes, I, I, I just think that if you could treat, if you could somehow manage to get black coaches all the same stuff that white coaches got, it would be better. And that's everything. But I don't, you know, Stefan, maybe you have a better, more precise answer to that. No, I think that's all spot on. And Josh, you circulated a piece from an Ohio State University blog that made the interesting observation about women coaches in sports where black women coaches tended to get, tend to get hired after a failed white coach and this after in basketball, a failed yeah. male white coach in basketball. So if the male white coach of a women's program gets fired and that program is struggling, they want to make a change. You bring in a black woman, but you've saddled her with a an underperforming, challenging situation. Yeah, I mean, this is the glass cliff is the, right. the kind of paradigm there. But yeah, the thing that I thought was interesting about that that piece and that research is this idea that black coaches get an opportunity when a school is looking for, you know, quote unquote, something different. A new direction. The, the difference being like this coach has different skin color than the previous coaches. Yeah. And so then that get that gets back to the previous point. And it's just like the racist assumption that oh, we tried a, a black person and that didn't work out. We're going to go back to hiring white people now. Or like, oh, we, you know, we hired a black person. And so like, you know, that problem solved. Like we don't have a pro, we don't have like a hiring problem anymore. So we can just go back to like looking at the exact same pool of people that we hired before. I mean, I think it was that same USA Today piece that noted that Stanford and Colorado were the only schools in the major college leagues that have ever hired more than two black head coaches. And so I think there is some truth to this idea that black coaches are seen as like, oh, let's like try this one time. And then if it doesn't work out, then, you know, we're never going to do that again. 
Well, I think about this a lot. And so one of the examples I use to sort of illustrate the problem here is I think about the only black head coach that ever, the black head coach from an HBCU that somehow got elevated to a Division One program. And that was Willie Jeffries, who left South Carolina State and ended up going to Wichita State in 1979. And he was there for four years and then ended up back in the HBCU ranks. But of course, that's not the only HBCU head football coach that's gone to Division One, And the one that did it most recently is a guy named Jay Hobson. He left Alcorn State and ended up coaching at Southern Miss, and he was a white guy. So, um, you know, this is just within the last couple of years. And so, like, even, even amongst, you know, the people that get opportunities at HBCUs and get to move up to the big leagues, I mean— they're still white guys, right? And so, I, so that's that's the way I think of it. It's just really difficult to disabuse people of the notion that black men could be in leadership positions. It's particularly like head coach in, in college. So, you know, man, I don't. Joel, how much do you think it has to do with donors and boosters? Like, even when we talk about like these schools, like groups being disproportionately white. Like, when you think about the donors and and boosters, that's got to be like a group that's you know basically all white. And so in terms of those groups wielding influence, but also just the perception of like, oh, do we want to have a black head coach who's like meeting with these people? Like how how much do you think that that is a factor when that's something that we don't like see or necessarily think about? Well, that's because it's like quiet systemic racism. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think I think that definitely is a huge factor, but I think it's like anything else, you know, the same way that black people don't often get to be the heads of media organizations or, you know, ascend to particular, you know, positions within a political apparatus. You know what I mean? Uh, Yet very powerful old white people don't often have a lot of faith in black people and elevate them into positions of leadership or, or, or anything else of prominence. And so, you know, it's a problem that is reflected in college football, but it's not limited to college football, right? Or, or football in general, just any, you know, any sport. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. On this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to answer some more listener questions. One of them being, when do you think you'll next attend a sporting event with more than 10,000 people? To hear our thoughts on that and other questions from you, the listeners, you need to be a Slate Plus member. It costs just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. All right, next question comes from Emma B on Twitter. Has COVID fundamentally sown more mistrust between players' unions and owners, or was that already at its lowest point? And Emma, anticipating my extreme willingness to question the question puts in parentheses answer may vary depending on the league. Good catch. Hmm. Uh, Stefan, what are your thoughts on this one? It's probably sown more mistrust. I mean, certainly it did in baseball in the spring, but I also tend to think that we make too much of the narrative of mistrust in player management relations in sports. Both sides are incentivized to get jobs done and get contracts signed and get athletes paid and playing. Um, So I think that the shit show that was Major League Baseball trying to negotiate an agreement to play the pandemic-shortened season was genuine in the hatred and the the anger and the frustration that it engendered, particularly on the player side. But long-term, yeah, I think that everybody views this stuff as internally view it as part of the deal. Evan Drellich has a nice piece on The Athletic about mostly baseball, but general labor relations in sports. And he quotes Gene Orza, who for more than 25 years was uh, number two at the Baseball Players Association. And Orza says, whether you like the people you're dealing with is totally irrelevant. It's overrated in the media. 
This is about getting a job done. If Mother Teresa made a lousy proposal, it didn't matter to me. Yeah, I mean, I think that sounds right. That I mean, they're already on opposite sides of labor issues, right? So it would be really difficult for any one thing to exacerbate the fundamental mistrust that is there between management and labor. Um, and I don't think that anything happened here today. Maybe, maybe there's a perception amongst them that like, man, they really willing to put us out here in the middle of this and we got to make this happen. Or, you know, hey, man, we no matter what, we've got to get out here and play and the owners are going to see to it that we've got to do it. So um, we've got to figure out the best possible circumstances for us. Maybe, you know, maybe those are, you know, some thoughts that are going through the, the players unions and the players themselves. But on the whole, I mean, they all have to come to an agreement on how they're going to play and when they're going to play. And maybe they're not going to agree on certain conditions for returning or, or not. But I mean, that's how it goes. I think the thing that I would look at in terms of player unions and owners would be I'd be looking down at college football, but I mean because it's not a college football union, right? And there are no owners in college football. But I think about the relationship between college football players and their institutions and conferences. And there was some momentum for a labor movement uh, over the summer when there was some thought about surely they're not going to make us play football without with no school. And then we saw that they were going to do that. So like that's a labor issue that we don't think of as a labor issue necessarily that needs to be resolved. And I imagine that a lot of the college football players that are on teams and have played through this, they're seeing just how little the coaches and athletic directors and conference commissioners care about their health and what they're willing to do to keep that money machine going, even, you know, despite all the risk at play here. So I imagine it'd be harder for them to have any more mistrust than they've had this year. But the fact of the matter is a lot of these guys are going to be gone in a couple of years. The seniors, the juniors, if there's going to be any momentum around a labor movement in college football, it's going to be incumbent upon these freshmen and sophomores and the outgoing and remaining seniors to carry out the work of the last few months. And we've seen in the history of college football, it's really hard to keep that momentum going. I don't know how you guys feel about the cliche of sports doesn't build character. It reveals it. Mm, I like that. But I was thinking of a slight variation on that, which is that the pandemic doesn't so mistrust. It reveals pre-existing mistrust. Mm -hmm. And I mm -hmm. think that the NBA was able to you know, get the bubble done and then restart as quickly as it did after only, you know, 71 days for the Lakers and the Heat, because there is a fundamental baseline of trust there and not just trust, but a fundamental kind of understanding of mutual benefit and mutual shared interest. But like the NBA is a, you know, the league office is able to say to the players, look, if we start in December versus on MLK Day, you know, it'll be an extra you know, hundreds upon hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue that we can all share. And I think the players, you know, and, and there's some disagreement here. It's not like a totally unanimous, but I think broadly the players can be like, all right, we trust you and we'll do it, even though it sucks. Um, but like, you know, it makes the most sense for us in the league and we'll do it. Whereas in baseball, there's never been any trust in recent years. And so, there's never going to be any kind of shared value system or belief that the commissioner's office, the, the owners, are representing the situation fairly and accurately. And I think on the other side, you know, the flip side, I think the league office is going to think that the players are always being unreasonable. And there's just not, you know, the pandemic is going to exacerbate those things. It's not going to be an opportunity. You know, maybe in the early days, people thought, oh, well, maybe this like extreme scenario will allow people to like come together. It's like, no, they're just going to distrust each other even more. And Joel, I had written down that like the biggest potential shift here is in college sports, because I think this has shown just the chasm between the rhetoric around college sports and by college administrators, um, the gap between what they profess to be their values and what their actual values are has never been wider. And I think the players know that and understand that. And so that's the biggest potential shift. But the thing that I that I guess I found most surprising in all of this is that there hasn't been more disagreement, open disagreement and outcry in the NFL. Hmm, why so? Just because the players are being kind of put at risk more than they were in the NBA, certainly. This push for the 17th game is still happening and it's going to happen in 2021 apparently. 
there's been all of these sorts of you know outbreaks and facilities and for some for good reason some for bad reason the players and the teams have been blamed for them rather than the league um you know forcing these players and teams into situations where outbreaks are inevitable and it just feels like you know there was some movement before the te- season started there were some opt outs there were some players you know doing the kind of like social media like petition type things of like we want to play but only safely and under these particular circumstances but you haven't really heard anything about that since the season started and it just feels like this narrative of oh it's the like you know ravens are to blame or the titans are to blame like that's kind of gone unchallenged from like the real star players and just like the kind of more workmanlike you know, players like that's just like sort of been the baseline and nobody's really pushed back against it. Am yeah. I, am I wrong about that? No, but in conclusion, what we've learned is that COVID has reinforced the narratives and the actual operational styles that govern labor relations in these three big sports, baseball, a hundred years of abject exploitation followed by 30 years of terrific rancor and strikes followed by 20 years of grudging labor peace, which now are, you know, has been revealed to be basically, eh, we still hate each other, but we getting it done. Basketball, a little more benevolent, particularly under Adam Silver, a younger sport. And then football, where the labor union has been viewed as the weakest in all of the major sports and does not seem to be, or does not seem to have taken uh, a particularly aggressive stance in the face of what feels like a week-to-week shit show. So maybe that's it. It's that, that it reveals, like you said, Josh, it reveals the basic nature of how these sports govern themselves. I mean, there there could have been a universe maybe where the players go, okay, if you're going to make us play, guarantee all of our contracts. Like that would have been a move, but that didn't happen. <laughs> hadn't they just hadn't they just expended a lot of capital having a labor fight right before the pandemic got started too, though, mm-hmm. right? Like, I mean, there was a lot, you know, remember they had just, ratified a new CBA in the NFL, you know, right before before the pandemic really got started, right? So I guess maybe they were just tired. Not, I, mean, I shouldn't say they were tired of fighting, but a lot of the fights that they were already having, like over the 17th game, over, you know, roster management, all this, you know, preseason games, all that sort of stuff. Like they were already sort of at, at loggerheads about that stuff. And maybe it was sort of impossible for... The only issue with the with COVID, it seemed to have been, how can you guarantee that we're going to be safe? And how are we going to roll out and get back? Because, I mean, the football players, they know that they can't, especially the NFL. I mean, it's always against them. They know that they have to play. They can't sit out a year, right? I mean, you know what I mean? Like, that's... And, and that's ultimately, like, why you don't... You probably don't see a lot of fighting because they already had had a labor fight and they're like, well, we're out here... There are a few things we can sort of argue over, but fundamentally, we've got to be out here because we cannot afford to miss a year. Most football players simply can't afford to sit out a year, right? Yeah, I mean, some some did, some did sit out, but I think you're certainly right about the like super majority of players. But there is something fundamentally unequal here about it's not like Goodell or the league are going to punish themselves if things don't you know, go go the right way if, if games have to get postponed or canceled or or things go sideways, you know, the penalties and the blame and the opprobrium all go on the teams and the players. And, you know, it, it's not like Goodell and the league gets everything right all the time. And and yet, you know, they've managed to succeed in establishing that premise. I guess I I feel like the league has got maybe you know I don't know which direction we're talking about who's receiving criticism or not like who are the people that are responsible for levying criticism at the leagues and the players and where is it coming from and how much one side is getting as opposed to the other but I do feel like there have been people and maybe it, it hasn't been the players but as as much as you'd like but I feel like people were like yo NFL you're fucking this up like you know you know like it's particularly after the that game that Denver played against your Saints. You know, where they were forced to have a, a off-the-street free agent wide receiver play quarterback for a whole NFL game. And I think people were upset at the NFL, by, with the exception of Vic Fangio, who blamed his quarterbacks 
for being at fault there, which maybe actually sort of tells you something, right? Like if you think about it, that even within the locker rooms, the players and coaches sort of put the onus on themselves as opposed to the league to keep themselves safe. A dude was on the practice squad, though, Joel. Come on. Yeah. The NFL wouldn't even let them sign and he has the street quarterback. Yeah, he right, has a name. He has a one. name. Kendall, Kendall Hinton. Hinton. Kendall Hinton. Hinton. That's right. <laughs> All right. Next question is from Shep on Twitter. Who is the player of the year in each of your unique locale niches? Any sport? Joel Houston, Josh, Louisiana, Stefan, Greece. <laughs> I got a whole country. Do you want to go first, Stefan? I think you should no, go no, first. No, no, no. Go ahead, Joel. Houston. Me? We always want to hear about Houston. It's that All time right. of the program. All I right. think Joel well, might be trying to buy some time. No, I got, I got, I have, t- I have actually two candidates. The the issue is that, um, you know, unlike Sports Illustrated, I don't necessarily care about like what you did off the field. You know, Player of the Year. <laughs> you know, Player of the Year is about results, and I'm a results. Well, no, Sports Illustrated was criticized this year because it only picked players who like won championships, which led them to pick Brianna Stewart out of the WNBA. Yeah, but they so maybe you are it. more like Sports Illustrated. Yeah, well, they, they tied to team it with that. You know, I'm just being open about what I care about. I'm not trying to attach it to any sort of social justice cause. I'm all about the results in Houston because we're champion. We call ourselves Clutch City, and that's because we believe in being clutch in these key moments and winning championships. So, can I can I ask you a, a baseline question here? Okay, as, as we know, <laughs> as we as we know from from listening to the to the show, you consider um, an athlete to represent Houston if they have any connection to Houston, no yeah. matter how tenuous. Does that apply for your Player of the Year? No, I'm keeping it to athletes that are representing Houston uh, teams okay. this year. Yeah, I mean, that that would have really opened it up, of course, because <laughs> Houston athletes are dominant. And we compete in so many other fields, and I just can't afford to Obviously. trace them all down. All right? Obviously. But do you know the only team in Houston that won a championship this year was the Houston Dash? Uh, of the NWSL, the Challenge Cup. I was just going to point that out. Yeah. So Rachel Daly, a forward from England, as she won the tournament's golden boot given to its top scorer. She had three goals and two assists in seven matches. So um, for so, the uh, person... Houston has to import players from other countries. <laughs> yeah, that's how great Houston athletes are. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. And people want to come from West Ham United to come play for uh, the the Houston Dash. So she's and also uh, uh, honorable mention to PJ Walker of the undefeated Houston Roughnecks of the XFL. I mm. have to believe that the Roughnecks would have won the XFL championship mm-hmm. had the season been allowed to play itself out to completion. So PJ Walker, quarterback, MVP of the Houston Roughnecks. He's my other. He's my second place for my Player of the Year in Houston. Are you up next, Josh? You have to represent Louisiana, which is crazy. I mean, why isn't New Orleans enough? I don't, why do you get to pick between Shreveport and West Monroe and all these other places? Because of LSU. Thank you, Shep, for allowing me to pick from uh, from Louisiana. So, you know, Michael Thomas and Drew Brees both spent much of the season hurt. Taysom Hill just didn't do quite enough for me this year. We're going to have to <laughs> reserve this award. <laughs> you damn right he didn't for, do enough. <laughs> <laughs> for 2021. <laughs> Brandon Ingram, most improved player in the NBA, but a Pelican is always going to be an underdog in this contest, given the stature of that team and the Louisiana sports firmament. So my my finalists are Alvin Kamara, hmm. six touchdowns, Recency rushing bias. Yeah. <laughs> on, on Friday, but also you know got that big running back contract, which we love to see, Joel. We love yeah. to see these running backs get paid. Has set all sorts of records in his first four years in the league with yards from from scrimmage, leading the, the Saints to their fourth straight uh, division title. Great year for for mm-hmm. Alvin, and uh, and he's a a charming and fun individual to to root for and fought for his money. Love that guy. The successor to Marshall Falk, also a New Orleanian. Another uh, finalist, ultimately not the winner, but a, a finalist is mm-hmm. Zion. Williamson mm-hmm. for being the most exciting new athlete in the New Orleans slash Louisiana sports scene in uh, quite some time. The kind of rare generational potential international superstar to call a New Orleans a home sports wise and has had a very promising beginning to his young career. So we're excited about Zion, um, but not not yet the the POI for Louisiana. Mm. Then we have Joe Burrow, who only played one game in 2020 mm. in Louisiana, but it was the national championship game played in New Orleans where, in which he led 
his uh, LSU Tigers to the championship over Clemson with five touchdown passes and a touchdown run. Ultimately, I think we're going to have to give Joe Burrow our 2019 Player of the Year award. But for the 2020 Louisiana Player of the Year, <laughs> we are going to go with another LSU Tiger, Jamar oh. Chase, oh. who had 200-plus yards receiving and two touchdowns in the national title game, capping off his Bolitnikoff award-winning season, and mm-hmm. then made the wise decision to opt out of the <laughs> 2020 college football season. And I don't I don't actually mean that as a, as a joke. Like, I think, you know, you could say, like, oh, LSU was going to be bad, and he was smart because they had a bad year. But actually, yeah, he saw leading, TJ Finley at practice, so I'm sure le- leading <laughs> the team to a national championship and then deciding not to play because you're going to be a top 10 pick and like there's a pandemic going on. I think as a fan of this team and of the sport and of this player, I've got to respect that. And I think Joel, like Jamar Chase is like stronger on this subject than you or I are like we weren't able to quit college football this year, despite believing that it was wrong to be played. And so I got to give respect to somebody who is able to do what I myself was not able to do. So Jamar Chase, you are the POY for Louisiana for 2020. So just to be clear, Josh, you've given your POY to somebody that didn't actually play. Oh, he played. Total contrast to Joel. He played. He won the national championship in uh, January 2020. And then he was like, peace out. All right, Greece. I got a whole country to choose from. Yeah. Maybe not as many famous athletes to choose from. So let's work from uh, our honorable mention, Maria Sakati. She rose to number 20 in the world in tennis, beat Madison Keys, Belinda Bencic, made the round of 16 at Australia and the U.S. Opens. Cincinnati Open beat Serena Williams. Ooh. We were all charmed by her. Number 20. That's runs. really good for Greece. Great job. It is. Yeah, Great job, Greece. Win. Yeah, way to go, Greece. Yeah, better than slow burn in the Atlantic rankings. <laughs> and then we've got the three musketeers, as they apparently are known in some Greek media and on Twitter. I did not know this. So the three musketeers, you can guess who two of the three musketeers are, right? One is Giannis, mm-hmm. and two is Stefanos Tsitsipas, my favorite tennis player. Um, the third, though, and he really doesn't get any vote here because he's a pole vaulter and they didn't do shit this year because the Olympics were canceled, Manolo Caralas. But because he hangs out with Giannis and Tsitsipas, that's a pretty impressive achievement for 2020. So he gets an honorable mention for that. Okay. So it really comes down to Giannis and Tsitsipas. All right, Giannis, MVP, Giannis, Biggest contract in the history of basketball, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Lovely guy. Very happy for him. Flamed out in the playoffs. Mm. Problem. Tsitsipas, amazing run at the French Open. Lost in a classic to Djokovic in the semifinals. And as important to me, he continued his unbroken run of YouTube and Instagram delightfulness. He hung out this summer with the other two musketeers. Are you not going to bring up God the fact us. that he like had that massive choke job at the U.S. Open? No, I'm not going to bring that up. No. <laughs> you're going to you're going to focus your enti- growth. You're going to focus your entire Giannis spiel on the fact that he flamed out of the playoffs and not talk about Tsitsipas having a total I'm collapse. I'm trying to justify my Player of the Year vote here. Obviously, Giannis <laughs> is the best player. The Three Musketeers though are hanging out on Mykonos and in Athens. I don't know where. Um, Giannis shows up and brings gifts for Tsitsipas and the other guy, Karalas. And Tsitsipas, I mean, bless his heart. Let's listen to a little bit of Tsitsipas receiving his gift of autographed Bucks sneakers and a jersey from Giannis. Yes, for you, okay. This is like the best gift I've received in the last years. Says, it's from the MVP, man. It's from the yeah. Great Days is a life mission. Oh, wow. Every day, eh? Every day. Like yes, sir. Like you on the beach, but you have treatment. It's like it's an everyday, everyday process. Everyday. Uh-uh. I like your words. Every day. It's a life mission greatness. <laughs> I love these guys. These are the yeah. most sincere athletes in the world. You know what? I changed my mind. We're splitting the player of the year vote. Wow. It was a tie. Giannis Tsitsipas, congratulations. And the pole vaulter doesn't get any. Uh, I like he that got, he, he did it. get presents. He got he got a present, not player of the year, though. Yeah, I'm the only per- a person that really like adhered to the idea that it mattered what you did as a player, you know, and 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 getting results here. So the pole vaulter, like Giannis, Greek dad, not like Giannis, but Greek dad, Ugandan mom. 
Um, are you so are you naming another, yourself hang up and listen panelist of the year, Joel? Is that is that? Well, that? I'm just saying that. I mean, I think that you know, Shep wanted you know players, people that actually played this year and did well and were champions. And you know, I kind of feel in keeping with his question, I, I he or she. I feel like Shep I, re- yeah. respects the fact that I only answer the question that I want to answer every every time. <laughs> it's been established as precedent at this point. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. So uh, we've been talking for quite a while now, so we're going to do a lightning round for the remaining questions. And this one will be from Alex Noble. That's at A-L-E-X-K-N-O-B-E-L. Thank you for the question, which is... What outright canceled event did you miss the most? Stefan, you want to go first? Sure, I'm going to go total dork and say the Ivy League basketball tournament, which is a corollary to missing March Madness, of course, which is one of the most fun things to watch during the year. Um, And the Ivy League tournament, because, you know, I went to a couple of Penn games last year. I am in the bag for the Quakers. They look like they had a shot to win it and go back to the NCAAs. And I just like the fact that, A, the Ivy League, you know, is still does a little damage when it gets to the NCAAs, loses almost every year, but is still competitive. And there is that wonderful small timeness to the tournament. And, you know, and I also respect the fact that they were the first to cancel their tournament in the spring, which led to the NCAA canceling March Madness. And again, was at the head of canceling winter sports, including basketball now. When you said you were going to go full dork, I was 100% sure you were going to say the spelling bee. But you're, you're full of surprises, <laughs> yeah. Mr. Fastest. Spelling bee 2 and the National School Scrabble Championship 3, though I did stage an online version of that event to replace it. So I don't know if you would consider this to be postponed or canceled, but I'm going to go very straightforward and say the Olympics. I mm. like the Olympics. I'm not afraid to say it. Enjoy watching it. Wow. It's one of my favorite parts of my job. Uh, marshalling slates Olympics coverage. And I was sad that there was no Olympics this year, Joel. Man, now the uh, public expenditures, huh? You're, you're a big fan of seeing, uh, you know, local local municipalities just spend billions of dollars. Uh, and people being denied their right to protest. That's right. That's you, what you want to support. You of, course, you, of course, only watch sports that are not problematic <laughs> in any way. So you have, Especially you have, college you have, football, Joel. I think, I think have, Josh called me a virtue signaler here. But uh, no, so... Uh, it's funny. I was going to pick the Olympics as well, but particularly uh, the sprinting events because this was the first year post Usain Bolt for the Olympics. And I was sort of interested to see who was going to succeed him as the world's fastest human. And it just didn't get a chance to do that. I mean, yeah, I'm a huge, I mean, everybody knows I'm a track guy. I love track. Um, and we've lost all of that this year. We lost the Texas relays, pin relays, Olympic trials. And then, you know, that big moment when, you know, you get to see, you know, everybody there. And, and, and I guess my number two one would have been the UIL basketball tournament, which is the uh, high school basketball tournament in Houston. I mean, sorry, in Texas. They canceled it right at like in the semifinals and finals for boys uh, in Texas this year in March. So uh, it's kind of sucks. I, I love watching it and, and hearing, you know, which basketball teams in, across the state are dominant. And it just kind of sucked that, it, you know, those kids didn't get a chance to do it. But we're all giving up stuff this year. And our last question, our last moment of Hang Up and Listen for the year, except if you're a Slate Plus member, hmm. subscribe. Brian Hendricks at Brian Hen on Twitter wants to know, what was the most uplifting and positive sports story of the year? Lightning round. Stefan, you want to go? Sure. I'm going to say Marcus Rashford, the English soccer player who did so much to raise awareness and raise money for childhood poverty in a way that the English government didn't. And he got a ton of coverage over there for his efforts. It really took off and made a gigantic difference. So Marcus Rashford, you are my uplifting and positive sports human of the year. 
I guess that means I should go. And for me, uh, and I guess I'm going to be explicitly political here, uh, but I think that the WNBA players support an elevation of the Raphael Warnock campaign in Georgia. Like it's clear from polling data that once they turn their attention from Kelly Loeffler, who's, you know, um, one of the owners, the majority owners of the Atlanta Dream, a WNBA team. And, um, you know, Loeffler's been explicitly anti Black Lives Matter and, you know, just sort of a generally regressive far right political figure, once the, the WNBA players turned their attention from her to increasing the visibility and viability of Reverend Warnock's campaign, uh, they helped him to emerge from the pack of Democratic candidates and um, ed- and then edge out Leffler in the general election. So you really got to see the power of, you know, when athletes speak up and use their platform for good. And uh, that's, I mean, that's, that's one of the more like remarkable things I've seen athletes do. Like they legitimately had a hand in uh, a political campaign and elevating somebody. So I thought that was like really uplifting and positive. Matt, if they had supported like, you know, shit, I don't know, Aubrey Huff, like maybe I wouldn't have been as excited about it. But uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> but it happened to work out in this instance. But yeah, Josh. You, you are allowed to have uh, political views. That is not, that's not illegal. Um <laughs> I think you guys both made great picks. I think it's also worth just kind of going with the the chalk here and saying, you know, the AP male and female athletes of the year are LeBron and Naomi Osaka, both excellent choices. Mm-hmm. I mean, those were the two kind of on court, I guess both different kinds of court, but like victories this year that actually made me feel something. Mm. I am always happy to see i'm a lebron fan and always happy to see him and his teams succeed and succeeding in the bubble like i got into the nba playoffs and that was a thing i followed and i was happy with the outcome and and watching the lakers in 2020 and then naomi osaka's run in the u.s open on the court which she did before the u.s open and kind of staging a one-woman strike that was then followed by um, the WTA tour and then kind of going on the court for every match at the U.S. Open wearing a mask with a different name of a um, Black victim of police violence um, was really remarkable. And seeing her kind of growth over the last few years as a player and a, a person has been really cool to watch. And so those for me were the things that I enjoyed and was uplifted by. You're real. I mean, it is a real testament. You talked about Naomi Osaka's growth. I mean, it's really impressive that you could look past LeBron and Anthony Davis uh, engineering his exit out of New Orleans to go to the Lakers. So that's I, that. That really says something for you, Josh. That you don't. You didn't hold that against Braun or Anthony Davis. So. This is a year for not compassion, Joel. That's right. This is not a year for criticism. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what I just said feels like a better way to to button up the show than my relatively you know, picky and thoughts on LeBron and Anthony Davis. But I will say that it, there's some something about the fact that the of the Pelicans pecking order that allows me to see past that, but also like Anthony Davis gave them many, many years. Um, and I do, I do not begrudge him uh, leaving to join another team. Uh, and on that note, <laughs> thank you to everybody who sent in questions. Thank you to our audience more broadly who we actually do not get to see even under normal circumstances but except at live love, shows except at live shows which we did not have this year but we love hearing from folks at hangupatslate.com and an email on twitter and our facebook page and the support that you guys give us um this year and every year it means a huge amount so thank you for that and it was also just great doing the show this year with Melissa Kaplan, our producer, and with you guys, Joel and Stefan. It was an important thing for me this year when there wasn't sports, when there was sports, to like have this to do with you guys and to look forward to and to have an outlet for all of the stuff that I was thinking and feeling um, was really important and valuable. So thanks to you guys for being great people and great people to do a show with. Joel, oh, uh, Josh, we, uh, I thank you personally and because you're the leader of this show and you mm-hmm. are the person that decided that we should bring Joel Anderson aboard. And that has made all the difference in, I oh. think this program and my enjoyment week to week of talking about our little corner of the world. So thank you, Joel, for joining us. And thank you, Josh, for what are we up to now? 11 years of doing this. Wow. Something like that. Thank you. Yeah, man. Well, yeah, I mean, I, and I guess I need to say that thank you all for welcoming me in and um, being just great teammates and, you know, Josh, Josh brought me into Slate 
uh, in the first place, man. And we don't have to talk about that here, but it just has been one of the more rewarding experiences of my life, um, being teammates with you all. And Melissa, who's been great and you know helped me to try to eliminate some of the noises that uh, in my, my very shoddy podcast setup here in Palo Alto uh, and has worked th- with me through that. So, um, but no, man, I, I love it. This is one of the most fun things I do. And yeah, I mean, there wasn't a lot great about 2020, but like being able to do this, even though I have to wake up at 530 in the morning often to get ready, <laughs> uh, has, been, has been worth Imagine how much more you'd love it if you got to do it on the normal schedule. Yeah, I know, right? Right. But no, nah, this has been a lot of fun and I look forward to, you know, seeing where this goes in 2021. So Thank we'll you, be Melissa back. Thank you, Melissa Kaplan. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Melissa. Thanks, everybody else. And that is our show for today, for the week, for the year. The aforementioned Melissa Kaplan is our producer. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. And please uh, subscribe to the show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts after all the nice things I just said about you. It's really the least that you could do. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis. I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty, always, and thanks for listening.